0: Today's reading will be from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved.
1: Morning Redemption, glad you are with us. If you're new, uh, thank you again and welcome. For uh, Thank you for being here and welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Arcadia. And uh, as you may have guessed, we have been going through the book of Ephesians. The reading was out of Ephesians 1. And we'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, but I wanted to make mention um Of our Theology Thursdays and give you a little preview about what's coming up. Uh, This year we decided that we're going to do a series of Theology Thursdays, uh, which is different than the Midweek Bible Studies. The Midweek Bible Studies are over several weeks usually. The Theology Thursdays, we just take one topic, one issue, and we take one night and try to deal with it. In January, we had Tom Schrader here talking about aging. It was fantastic. If you'd like to hear that, uh, recording, which you should, no matter what age you are, it is on our website. You can find the podcast there. Uh, in March, we're going to do one on parenting, uh, with a couple that has a, a counseling practice here that that really leans into that. In February, on February twenty second, uh, I've been working with Chad D. Miguel, who's a part of our uh, our congregation and who really has for a long time been called and gifted in this area of understanding what it means to be in the marketplace and be a gospel-centered person and the challenges and the tensions of that, which is really hard. And and so he's going to be doing, and I'm going to help him lead this, uh, we're going to be leading a discussion, we call it gospel in the marketplace, but specifically on Thursday, February 22nd, we're going to be leading a discussion uh, about what it means to, to go into the marketplace legitimately with fear, because most of us, we don't like to admit it, but we have fear, uh, the fear of risk, the fear of failure, uh, the fear of not looking good, all of those fears, but then also how God has also created us with creativity and imagination and, and how that all works together. And, and um, we're, we're gonna be having that discussion. We've invited uh, three people from our congregation to be involved in that as a panel discussion uh, who have experienced both sides of this, the fear and the imagination. Uh, Melissa Balkin is going to be with us, uh, Aaron Klusman is going to be with us, and Paul Tyson is also going to be with us. So it's going to be a great night, about 75 minutes. It'll be right here in the sanctuary. That'll be Thursday, February 22nd, 630 to 745. Um, We won't have food, but you can bring food in if, if you want to or just eat before you come. So... Uh, mark that on your calendar. Now we've been going through the book of Ephesians and we're going to be going through the book of Ephesians for quite some time, 39 weeks in a book that has about 160 chapters. So literally verse by verse at times word by word uh, through this book. On the value of Ephesians, New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold writes this, the contents of the book of Ephesians are simple enough and so foundational that the letter should be read and studied by every new believer. Yet the theological concepts are so profound that the most mature Christians never seem to master its depth. That's just true, I've found. In, in the 31 years I've been a believer, it, it's a, Ephesians is a book that I go back to over and over and over, and, and you, you continue to find new things in this. And yet... It deals with so many wonderful issues that are salient to us today uh, that that every new believer should be reading this book as well. Uh, This letter summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any book in the Bible. It clarifies the heart of the Christian faith, explores the dynamics of a personal relationship with Christ, sets forth God's overall plan for the church, and draws out the implications of what it means to live as a Christian. He's right on every one of those accounts. Uh, and, and we've been taking several weeks to look at this very first section of chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Uh, we, this is our fourth week in it. We have two more weeks that we're going to look at, 3 through 14. Uh, 3 through 14 is, is Paul telling us all the ways that we have been blessed in Christ, as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ. It's just one after another. I count in these 12 verses 23 ways in which we've been blessed in Christ. And literally what Paul is saying in this section is we have been graced with grace. We've been graced with grace upon grace. It's just all about the grace of God, his unmerited favor toward us, his love and mercy uh, toward us. And although... Paul writes this in ancient Greek, and it is written to the Christian church. He he also writes this because he's Jewish, and his background is in the Old Testament scriptures. He writes this in a style and fashion of what's known as the Barakah. And a Barakah is an extended proclamation of Hebrew blessing, praise, and celebration. And this is really important to get about these 12 verses, because these verses... Can create a lot of uh, of interesting discussion and even debate among believers as to what is the meaning of all of these words and all of these blessings and how are they manifested. Here's one of the things that we need to understand about what Paul is doing in these 12 verses he is celebrating more than he is explaining, he is celebrating more than he is explaining. So why are we spending six weeks in it? Because we're trying to explain it to the best of our knowledge, but he is celebrating this. And so as we explain it and talk about it and unpack it, you and I should also recognize this is a celebration. This is cause for praise. These verses are a salute to God. They are a salute to his character. And they are a salute to what he has done for us through Christ our Lord. And and, and here, as we go through verses 3 through 14... Here's maybe a, a helpful way that we can uh, think about this. Some of you know, probably all of you know, uh, I don't watch these shows, but I know all about them because of our household, okay? The reality shows about flipping and renovating houses. You, you all know these shows? So House Hunters, Fixer Upper, Flip This House, Flipper Flop, <laughs> Shack in the Back, I made that one up. I had to look the other ones up on the internet, okay? Um, uh, Jackie and Shelby really love these shows. If I'm not in the room, this is what they're watching, okay? Anyway, think of verses 3 through 14 this way. Verses 3 through 14, you're standing in front of that house with Chip and Joanna, okay? You're looking at the house at its entirety, (laughs) okay? This is what you're doing, all right? And remember, it's 3 through 14 is just one long sentence in the Greek. We make it into five sentences in the ESV translation. And it's one message, the ways in which those who are in Christ are blessed. So you're looking at the outside. And then verses 3 through 14, after we've had the overview of the the house, verses 3 through 14, we're going into the house and we're looking in each room. And we're assessing each room. So like when Brian got up here and did the reading, notice how every week we're only looking at one, two, or three verses, but every week we're also reading 3 through 14. Uh, The reader is giving us the outside view, and then each week we're going inside each of these particular rooms with the message. The difference, though, between this and the shows is that we're not renovating any of these rooms. These rooms are good Uh, as is. And so let me just uh, read the section that we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at verses 8 through 10, but I want to start at the end of verse 7 so that we get a little bit of, of context. Paul's writing, and we pick it up at the end of 7, according to the riches of his grace, God's grace, according to the riches of his grace, which, that grace which, He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What are there, five or six different clauses there that you have to look at and and, and begin to put together and, and, and understand? He says, Paul says... This is according to the riches of his grace. Here's the thing about grace. Grace always flows downhill, and it always settles in the lowest places. And here's why that's true. It's because the gospel is for desperate people. The gospel is for people who recognize their need. Those of us, and I count myself in that category for... For 27 years before I came to Christ, and then even after that, when I was kind of like, I'm still pretty good, Jesus is just plugging the holes. That's bad theology, by the way. <laughs> but, but so many of us are just sure that we don't necessarily need help, that we're up here. W- well, the grace is always going to flow down to these lowest levels. The gospel is for desperate people, and it's helpful for us to be able to remember that. And this grace was lavished on us. I love that word lavished. It's a picture of the generosity of God. Here you go. God doesn't give us just enough grace. He gives us more grace than we could ever imagine or need. And that's clear in scripture. He's not running the numbers and measuring it and then filling us up just to where we need. He's just lavishing it on us. And and here you go. Now we get into verse 8. His grace was lavished. In all wisdom and insight. This this lavishing of grace was driven by his wisdom and his insight. It's interesting to think about this in this way. For God, this was not just an emotional thing that he did for us. It's not just an emotional thing. His lavishing was accomplished in his wisdom and insight. This was a rational, purposeful, considered, and thought out Act of love and compassion for us. He didn't just do this out of an emotional reaction. He did this because he knew this is what he wanted to do for us. I want you you to follow along with this. This is really important to get the the tension that I'm trying to get at here. There's no question that Jesus wants our hearts. Absolutely no question. That's vernacular for he, he wants our affections wants our emotions. And, and there's no question that Paul speaks to the importance of us giving our entire lives to Jesus. Jesus speaks of this as well. Paul and Jesus are absolutely on the same page on this. You've heard the expression, heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? All of it, okay? Now, now think, of it, think of it this way, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Emotionally, cognitively, existentially, and physically. that pretty much covers everything, right? That's that's everything. It's holistic, if you want to use that word. It's everything that we we submit to him. I would argue, though, that at times, we struggle and we begin to marginalize that rational part of our faith, that, that cognitive part of our faith. I think too often in the church, we we minimize the importance of logical, cognitive, the thinking part of our faith. You've probably heard people in culture say that Christians aren't rational beings, (laughs) that it's irrational to think this way. But when you start to compare uh, the reality of the gospel and why we need it and the fact that there are problems with the human condition... To culture's answers for that, I'm telling you, this is a lot more rational than what culture seems to bring to the table. And we could unpack all of that some night, but it's just true. Some some of the answers that culture has for the the evils and the problem in this world are are absolutely bankrupt of any intelligence. There, There is a logical part of our faith and and here's an example uh philippians chapter 1 verse 9 paul's writing to the church at philippi and by the way this is about the same time that he's writing ephesians as well he's writing this from uh from prison he writes this it is my prayer that you your love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment your love would would abound more and more not with feelings and passion not with lust and desire but with knowledge and discernment now he's he's not, again he's not discounting the importance of affect and emotion he is saying though that love at its core is a decision it is a commitment it is in reality To work best unconditional. If it's unconditional, it can't necessarily always be tied to our feelings and our passions and our lusts and our desires. We need to understand that. Now, certainly there's an emotional side to love. Again, I don't want to discount. There is a hugely emotional side to love, and and, and emotions are a big part, I don't want to use huge, a big part, people get distracted by that. Emotions are a big big part of the human experience that is just true and I don't want to discount that but Paul Jesus Peter John all of them speak of how love is not just affect and emotion it is a commitment a covenant it is a rational and purposeful trait of those who know Jesus here's another one Romans chapter 12 verse 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by what the renewing of your mind it's not just our heart that changes. It's not just a new heart that Jesus gives us. But he begins to transform our mind. The transformation that pr- Christ brings to us through his sacrifice and resurrection is emotional, but it's not just emotional. It's holistic. Jesus calls us to love completely with our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And, and here you go, every one of us. Uh, this is the, you recognize this throughout the world, and your relationships. I teach this at Paradise Valley Community College in COM 100. It's important to understand how our brains work. Every one of us has a leaning. Here you go. Don't don't take this negatively, but every one of us is bent a certain way. Okay? And, And some of us are bent more to the heart. We are. We're bent more toward the affective side of life. Some of us are bent more to... The mind, we're, we're bent more to that, sort of that, I just want to see the evidence, that sort of a thing. The, the stodgy guys like me that are no fun on vacation, OK? Uh, some of us are bent more to soul, the, the ethereal and the existential. And some of us just want to go to the gym. It's just true that we're just just—we're <laughs> bent a particular way. And here you go. That is good because that's the way God created us. That's the way God made us. But, but here's the challenge. It, it's when somebody wants everyone else to be that way that they are. They want to homogenize everyone else to be like them. Have you ever noticed that nobody ever wants to change and homogenize anyone to be different from them? Have you ever noticed that? That's a problem. And yet God has created us different. So you're actually fighting with God when you start trying to do that. You cannot be any one of those things to the exclusion of the others. It's not even possible. Those of us who are more cognitive, bent more towards that, I have an affective side. I have a soul side. I have a physical side. It's just that I'm more dominated by that cognitive side. But I'm, I'm, I have all of those Others as well. And it's a picture of the body, and we have to understand that. You can't have any one of these things to the exclusion of the others because we're a body, and we need all of those. We desperately need all of those. The ear cannot say to the eye, I have no use for you, and the eye cannot say to the elbow, I am more important and I am better than you. We can't do that. And and as I've said, I'm more of a mind person. But I cannot, I cannot... Marginalize the heart person. And in fact, as a mind person, I believe that I have a calling on my life in the gospel to start working on that heart side a little bit more and to engage with the heart people and to learn from them and to even exalt them in what they are doing. And believe me, if we didn't have the heart people in our body, we wouldn't be a body. Same with the soul people and the strength, the physical people. We have to understand that. That is, that's the way God has made it. Now, one more thing on this uh, idea of wisdom and insight. Because of God's character, he has lavished his grace on us in his wisdom and insight. Therefore, get this now, his wisdom and insight are also imputed to us through Christ and are available and, and accessible to us through Christ and through the filling of the Holy Spirit so that you and I might operate in our lives out of wisdom and insight, that we would have his discernment and that we would not operate out of foolishness. Wisdom and insight. Paul's going to tell us later on in Ephesians, if we, in Ephesians 5, if we ever get there, in Ephesians 5, he's going to say, here's how you live in wisdom and insight. You submit your life to the will of God. That's wisdom. You want to be foolish? Submit your life to anything else. If you want wisdom, here's, here's how you do it. it it's, it's, um, it's Paul saying in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 You and I are to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. We're to submit to his will and then see the world the way Jesus does and have a heart for the same things that God has a heart for. That's submitting to his will, and that is wisdom and insight and all of this is a result of the mystery of his will look at verse 9 he has made known to us the mystery of his will what is that word mystery in the greek mysterion in this letter and in this context this word is referring to something that was previously hidden completely and too magnificent to be fully grasped this side of heaven And yet God has now revealed it in part to us in order to give us confidence in his mission and purpose and genuine hope in the future. This is Paul saying, uh, when he writes to the church in Corinth, this is him saying, we can now see through the glass, but the glass is dark. It's kind of opaque. We We can see the reality this revelation of what God is doing, but we still can't see it completely in, its, in all of its detail. We see through the glass darkly, but someday we're going to be able to see this in its totality and in its completion, in its wholeness, in its, in its complete beauty. Think of, think of the beauty and the perfection in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. That verse says, kind of summing up everything about the creation story and specifically about the creation of humanity and men and women. And it says this, and it's right before you get to Genesis 3, which was when everything goes south, when sin enters the world and corrupts the world. Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and the woman were together, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And, And I know, just from personal experience, the first time you read that, On a very surfacey reading, you're like, nah, it sounds like fun. Okay. Everybody's naked. All right, cool. Okay, that now, physical nudity was a part of that. We discover that in chapter three. That's true. But that's just the surface of of the point that God is trying to get across there. That idea of being naked and not ashamed means that they had an intimacy that you and I. Pine for and know is there, but have never been able to perfectly achieve with anybody. A level of trust, a a level of vulnerability, a a level of transparency. We yearn for that. And, And here's the thing, God has created us in his image and likeness. And Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts, which means you can, whatever kind of language you want to use, we have that spark, we have that, we have that drop, we have that understanding, we have that intuition deep in our souls that there is perfection out there, there is paradise, there is completion, there is fullness, but we don't have it because of the corruption of sin. But we want it. Could you imagine being in relationship with all people and not having to worry about trust or intimacy or authenticity or what you can disclose to that person or watching your back or is this going to go well? Could you imagine living like that? That would be awesome, right? That's what they had in Genesis 2. That's why it was called paradise. And in fact, if, if, if you were to go to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and start talking to them about words like, Trust and corruption, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. They would have no idea. they had never experienced it. This is what we're headed towards. This is what we want. In Christ, through the gospel, we begin to experience that. That That little drop that's in our souls, in our hearts that knows about it, in Christ, when we come to him and we have the gospel. That begins to grow. We begin to see the reality of that. We begin to see how God is going to come at some point, and he's going to reconcile, and he's going to restore all of that. And this this long, this long introductory part of Ephesians is about that. It's heading towards that. It's, it's Paul celebrating the fact that he is going to unify everything in Christ, reconcile it and restore it, and it's going to be perfect again. It's beautiful because it's good, And we love it, but here you go. It's frustrating because we still can't experience it fully right now. Amen, right? There's a a tension there. It's beautiful and it's frustrating at the same time. We get a foretaste, but we haven't experienced it fully yet. And this is essential. The mystery of his will is centered in Jesus Christ, and its purpose is the redemption, reconciliation, and unity of all things. Centered in Christ... Unity of all things. Just walk out of here today going, centered in Christ, unity in all things. Verse 10, the mystery is his plan for the fullness of t- in the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That, that fullness of time, generally in ancient Greek, there were two words for time. There was chronos, we get the, the word chronology from that, or chronological time, and then there was kairos. So think of it this way. Kronos is what time is it? This is going to happen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. Kairos is not time, but it's timing. It's opportunity. Kairos is actually an agricultural term that was generally used to talk about when the harvest was the perfect time for the harvest to be brought in. The fullness of time. Get her, better get out there to the, to the crops and start picking them. This, the fullness of time has come in. This is the word that Paul uses here, the fullness of time in God's redemptive plan and purpose for everything. That's what he's referring to here. And, 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 and as the church, we get to have a part in that plan, purpose, mission, and mystery. The mystery of his purpose, which is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. And, and the finality of that, the fullness of time, is in fact the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes again. It's heaven. It's heaven. And it's funny because, again, when you start studying the history and the context of this, you begin to see how Paul is also doing a little, kind of a little play here uh, culturally. In the first century Mediterranean understanding of life, What was believed, and by the way, the Roman government did everything they could to sort of of push this belief on people, so it wasn't by accident, but their understanding was that somehow all things were supposed to be united in and by the emperor of Rome. He was the one who was going to unite all things, and at this time that Paul's writing this, it would be Nero. Now, here you go. If you can't see the correlation to this today with our government, every little problem you and I have, what's the government going to do about it? We want our government to do exactly the same thing. We want the government to fix everything. We want the government to unite everything. We want the government to reconcile everything. We want the government to restore everything. Paul, saying that all things are united in Christ... Is taking a shot at that worldview. That's the wrong worldview to have. There's one unifier, there's one restorer, there's one reconciler, there's one person in which we have victory. It is in Christ. Christ is the better and truer emperor than Nero or anything that's going on in Washington, D.C. That's what he's saying. And so, We're being being united, and we're going to be united in Christ. Now, a good question is, well, so united in what ways? There are three major categories that we could talk about this, and here you go. We're going to unpack these more and more as we go through Ephesians because this is the main theme of Ephesians, the unity of all things in heaven and earth. But specifically, number one, it's the unity of all people who are different. In in Ephesians, we're going to get to, specifically, he's going to talk about the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles, which is, if you lived in that context, that would be freaky crazy. Only a miracle could make that happen. But he's saying, in Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles are united. More comprehensively, that means all people of all nations, all ethnicities, and all races. It's, it's, It's Revelation 22 saying that The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of all nations. We're going to be reconciled. We're going to be unified. The second way is this idea of one flesh. It's the one flesh concept. The church, all Christians, we are now one with Christ. Uh, And you and I are one body together. And then even more specifically, the one flesh concept for people who are married The Bible says in several different places, including Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19, Ephesians 5, that a husband and wife, when they get married, they are inextricably knit together as one flesh. So that's part of it as well. A marriage in the gospel is a picture of this one flesh uh, unity of the gospel that it brings to the world. And, And then the third is it was always God's purpose before creation and expressed in the Garden of Eden and then restored in the New Jerusalem. In other words, all of creation and all of heaven and earth. So it's, it's people, it's the one flesh concept, and then it's just all of creation. And every, every one of these is a part of the unification of all things, but here's the key, and again, here's the key. You've got to get this. Whichever one it is, all unification is done in and under the authority of Jesus and not what you and I bring the, bring to the table. You and I must never underestimate. I'm sorry, let me say that again. You and I must never overestimate our role in the Lord's work, but we can also not ever underestimate the opportunities we have in his body because of redemption. So, we talked about this in in the very beginning message on Ephesians, how the vision of this letter is equipping God's people today for tomorrow's world. Equipping God's people today for tomorrow's world. Tomorrow's world, today's world... Yesterday's world, it's decidedly filled with division and antipathy, right? We're just divided. E- even ourselves are divided. We're divided against ourselves. The world is broken, it's distorted, it's fragmented, it's disintegrating. Okay? Here are some examples. And those of you who take notes, I would just ask, stop taking notes here and just listen. I understand. I'm a note-taker myself. Don't take notes. You can take a picture of the screen when it's done if you want. You can listen to the podcast again. Just fast-forward through all that other stuff and get to the the end of it. Whatever you want to do. But just listen to this. I'm not going to unpack all of these because Ephesians is going to unpack every single one of these in the the next 30-something weeks. We're going to deal with all of these. I just want you to start considering these things. Start thinking about these things. Okay? Here are some examples. Tomorrow's world is confused about God. Could there be a God who is both powerful and beautiful? Is that even possible? Both at the same time? There are other questions too. Tomorrow's world is confused about purpose. Is there meaning to life? Do I really have a purpose or am I just a a glob of biology making my way through this and then it's Then it's the great unknown. Is history progressing and to what end? Tomorrow's world is pluralistic and multiracial. How can people from different backgrounds live in unity? Tomorrow's world is skeptical of the church. What is the church anyway and do we even need it? Tomorrow's world is certainly confused about morality. Is there right and wrong? What, What... What role does context play in the question of right or wrong? Is there there a more beautiful vision of life? Here you go. What is truth and is there any such thing as absolute truth? Tomorrow's world is confused about family. What is marriage? Is a healthy family possible? Tomorrow's world is spiritual but not religious. What is true spirituality? Spirituality. Do spiritual powers exist? Tomorrow's world is confused about identity. Who am I really? And what defines me? Is it my past? Is it my lifestyle, whatever that means? Is it my status? Is it my desires? Does my family uh, define me, my education, my achievements? Here's the last one. This one, I was just... As I started to really dig into this, wow, I was blown away by this. Tomorrow's world is depleted of joy and contentment. I still come back to this book that I believe was originally written in 1999 and has been updated by the author Greg Easterbrook several times. I've read this book four times now. It's called The Progress Paradox. The subtitle is How Life Gets Better and We Feel Worse. And and he has this amazing review of all the research out there, how we are the most successful, wealthiest, achieving culture that has ever existed in the history of the world. And we are also the most counseled, medicated, and depressed people that have ever existed in the history of the world. Progress paradox. Think about that. Eugene Peterson recently wrote an essay. I, again, just what a great insight. He, he said, do you know why the entertainment business is such a big deal in the United States? It's because we're depleted of joy and contentment, and we'll look anywhere for that. We'll look anywhere but where true joy and contentment reside, which is in Christ. Paul says of contentment, you can't. You can't just have it. You have to learn it. And, and I think that I've had conversations with Cody about this. Joy is something that is also at least partially learned. H- here you go. Joy and contentment, there is no possible way to drift towards joy and contentment. You can't do it. You don't drift. Here's what we drift towards. We drift towards depression, discouragement, and frustration. That's what we drift towards. It has to be a purposeful, intentional journey in our life. And that joy and contentment is always centered in Christ. And here you go. It is also an outcome and an outgrowth of discipleship in Christ, of intentional gospel-centered relationships. uh, That's one of the reasons Allison is on staff here, because we take those relationships that serious. Now understand, Ephesians speaks to every one of these fractures in the coming weeks. We're going to deal with all of these. It's one of the reasons we're taking 39 weeks to go through Ephesians. I would say these are important topics. We may not hit on them every single week, but we're certainly going to deal with it comprehensively through the next 34, 35 weeks that we have left. And every one of them, the answer to every one of those issues resides in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we, uh, we thank you that it, by the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit, you have uh, used Paul to record these thoughts so that we might be able to learn from them and glean from them and and be directed toward wisdom and insight in them even today, more than 2,000 years later. God, we thank you for that. We pray the filling of your Holy Spirit. We pray that the resurrected Christ would direct all things for us. We ask that you would bless us and that you would be given all glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.